Fernwood Press promotes poetry collections that speak to the human capacity for spiritual experiences. Sign up to receive a poem delivered to your inbox each morning. Find them online at fernwoodpress.com and on Instagram. You are listening to Lord Have Mercy, a podcast about God, sex, and the Bible. I'm your host, Crystal Cheatham. Today's guest is Lenny Duncan, pastor of Jehu's Table, a church in Brooklyn. Lenny is also the author of the upcoming book, Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S. Today, Lenny is discussing his new devotional in our Bible app called Recovery and Resurrection for those who have known death intimately along with his book and a bit about his complex sexuality. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy talking to this Goliath of truth bombs. Oh, Lenny, you've been you've been getting so much attention for um, your book that hasn't even dropped yet. I know. Dear Church. What? Um, so I got to read um, bits and parts of it, that and your devotional. And I got to say, like, I am so impressed and excited and thankful for your ability to write like you are a fantastic writer um did you always know that you wanted to write um yeah well so like when i was a when i was a kid right when i was a kid in west philly right like i wanted to be a writer right like um uh and like systemic stuff personal stuff family stuff like kept me from doing that you know um i was like homeless at 13 and you know all kinds of stuff and um um and so like i always wanted to write i always wrote um but like i kind of gave up on that right like as writers or as a creative you're like well i didn't make it yet so it's over right and you'll be like 25 (laughs) it's over right and um I went to seminary to become a pastor and I walked out a writer and it was a really weird experience. So I went there to learn how to administer the sacraments as we put it. Right. And, um, and, and to preach the damn gospel and to, you know, and, and, and to do that stuff. But I ended up, um, walking out a writer with a voice. I guess I, I don't, I, you submitted this, fantastic this amazing uh just deep piece about addiction um how did you go from being a homeless youth uh through addiction and uh you talk a lot about your um incarceration to being a minister like to me that just doesn't uh it doesn't like it's not easy to just like see that uh that linear path and be like oh yeah that connects that makes sense you know <laughs> yeah no i mean how i always describe it to people is that jesus is a terrorist um and not right. a fr- not a friendly person um and in the sense of that like uh um you know i spent a lot of years i never thought i'd make it to 30 and then when i made it to 30 i was trying to get sober but i um i it's 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 hard to explain um but i do know that the day i got sober deep down inside i heard a voice that said you're getting sober today and for some reason i associated that voice with jesus christ of nazareth with no church upbringing no reason and and in fact i was the kind of guy um I was the kind of guy, uh, like, I've been, I don't know, I've been on this vicious Elton John tear for, like, the last four or five days. And, you know, um, in Tiny Dancer, when it's, like, Jesus freak out in the street, right, and then the girl passes him, and she, she turns back and says, like, you know, the boulevard's not that bad, right? So I had been homeless. I had been in prison. I had been approached by Jesus-y people in my life. I had been approached by church. And that was basically my answer. Like the boulevard is not that bad. The streets are not that bad that I need to go to your weird world um, to get better. But something happened for me. And so um, often people ask me, particularly people who have kids who are incarcerated or have loved ones who've been incarcerated or have been homeless or have suffered from addiction or alcoholism. They're like, what's the trick? What happened for you? 
And what happened for me is that grace is often, I, I have a no strings attached relationship with grace and, um, and, and it's intrusive and it is uh, hard to explain, but a series of events just kind of lined up in a way that, that got me to this place. Um, and so when I heard a call to ministry, I denied it. I, um, I, uh, I think church is lame. I think pastors are the worst. Um, I still kind of land there today. Um, uh, and so when I heard a call to ministry, I ran like hell. I ran like hell and I tried to do everything I could not to make it happen. Um, and I just, so by the time I got to the point where I was sitting in front of the bishops committee and all that stuff, which we call a candidacy committee in the ELCA, I uh, had really reached a point where I was like, well, you know, I really didn't want to do this. Um, so I said stuff like, you know, like, well, I got 14 felonies. Ha ha. You know, like yeah. I was trying to shock my way out of the room. Um, I was like, I, you know, I was a sex worker as a kid. What about that? You know, like that kind of stuff. And um, they thanked me for ha being upfront and honest at the beginning. And they moved on. We all need that, that kind of grace. In, in in the beginning of your devotional, it's called, um, it's basically just, it, for those of us, for those of us who have known death intimately, recovery yeah. and resurrection devotional. Um, yes. This is such a timely piece for, um, for those of us who maybe haven't struggled with um, addiction, but uh, have struggled with inner demons. Um, and also trying to uh, understand this Lenten season um, of cutting yourself off from something that you really love. Um, I'm interested in in what you are hoping people would would take from this from this piece, and if it's okay with you, I'll, I want to read uh, a couple of things from it. But absolutely. Um, so, do you want me to answer the question first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. please. So, uh, you know, I think. Um, for one thing, recovery devotionals fucking suck. Alec, in general, <laughs> they are so bad. They are, they are written for white cisgendered heterosexual dudes who stumble into a twelve-step meeting, and you know will understand like, oh, the boss is mad at me, or I've padded the expense account, or like any of that kind of stuff. But there is nothing for folks who are fucking broken, ripped in half, put back together, but still have these kind of jagged edges. And um, as a whole, um, I, 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 because of our traditions, I won't identify what 12-step uh, program I'm a part of, but as a whole, the one I belong to is really white. And, um, and so there's these like really kind of constructs of whiteness throughout the entire thing. I also was in love with death. I mean, like, I don't know if you've ever had people on the podcast. Listen, shooting cocaine is fun. And, and it, it pushes you to a place where, like, you feel your heart beating. You start to black out. Things go red. And you're like, this is it. It's over for me. Yes. And then you wake up. Or it wears off. And you're still here. Um, I guess, you know, that's, that's one of the things that grabs you right in the middle of this, uh, right in the beginning of this devotional. Um, and it'll, it pulls you in. You know, the, one of the first things you say is the truth for me is that something deep down inside courted death. And then you move on to say, I loved anything that would stick my head over the deep chasm between life and, and resurrection and let me scream into the abyss. <laughs> I loved it even when it didn't love me back. Yeah. And how many of us have relationships and loves like that in our lives? And, and that could be food. That could be sex. That could be your partner. That could be the church. Yeah, I yeah. mean, right now we're so polarized. And I know we're going to get into the topic of sexuality, but the progressives, the moderates and the so-called conservatives, because I don't think they're really reading scripture closely. So I don't know how we can call them conservative, yeah. but Right now, we we are uh, we are so into 
ripping each other to shreds and not having discussion and 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 I think we love it. I, I think there is a part of us that loves to get as close to death as we can and just scream into the nothingness. Um, and I love anything that does that for me. Um, and it's something deep down inside me that's off, right? Um, a lot of people use the broken language, but it's just something that it's just off. It's just a little bit off. You know, I have a friend who has 20 years sober. Actually, more now. He's got like close to thirty now, and he's he's a he owns a construction company, and he's like, man, he's like, you know, I know I, I I I'm an alcoholic or I suffer from the spiritual disease of alcoholism. He's like, I my life is wonderful, and I'll be standing on a roof, and a little voice will be like, jump. <laughs> where, where did that come from? You know, and that that's what I'm talking about. You know, um, and uh, but yeah. Um, there, there, there's no like real devotional that talks about that. There's a lot of stuff that talks about how we should live our lives and some of it's pejorative and some of it's graceful and some of it's, you know, like pithy and all that kind of stuff. And some of it is really deep and spiritual, but like, there's not a devotional where someone says, fuck, there's not a devotional where it's, where someone says, I have X amount of years sober and I'm still uh, I'm still like having sex with strangers anonymously and I don't want to talk about it. There is no devotional where people are talking about, which is cool. Like, right. If you're doing that ethically right on, but like there's, there's other ways that stuff manifests itself in, in, in your life. Um, there's no devotional, um, where people are talking about like, like, like I have a lot of time sober, but I am still seriously fucked up. <laughs> I guess you know it's 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 really hard to talk about it. It's really hard to talk about our demons and the things that terrify us, the things we submit to. Um, even more so to, I mean, when you write it down, you're basically making yourself uh, some kind of a leader. You're saying, um, "I committed these things. These things are inside me." You know, not outside me, not like this thing happened to me. No, it's like this is inside me. Like that takes so much strength and vulnerability. Um, like most most of us just don't have it in us. Like, how did you get there? How did you get to a place where you were like, oh, I can write about this? <laughs> you know, it's funny too because uh, some of my early like writing heroes, um, uh, like uh, Nadia Bowles Weber, who's a good friend. Mm -hmm. and, other folks, they talked about their uh, recovery really early on in their writing, right? Um, and, 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 and there's a ton of other folks. Um, uh, my friend Micah Cray in Baltimore, who's a pastor there, he, took, he has a whole blog dedicated to it. Um, and I didn't talk a lot about being in recovery when I first started writing. I talked about like the interactions of uh, uh, racism in the church. And that was like my sweet spot. So this kind of stretched me a little bit to actually start talking about it. But I have. I've written for like a couple other uh, outlets like Working Preacher and some other places about recovery. You know, it, it, it's an interesting thing, right? The people who have probably some really valuable stuff to say about recovery, um, most 12-step programs or other recovery uh, programs or paradigms or frameworks – don't encourage you to talk about it publicly. Um, and so there's this culture of you, you, you leave a culture of secrecy and then you get kind of pigeonholed into a culture of false humility, mm -hmm. right? Of like, Oh, what I'm doing is not that special. I'm just doing what everyone else is doing, but that's not the case. I mean, you're wrestling with something that tried to kill you, and 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 you've been set free. And how in the fuck did that happen for you? And and what is God's place in that? Did God have anything to do with that? Was it all just you? Um, and so it's 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 there. There's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of cultural dynamics around it. Um, um, that are interesting. So it took me a while to really start writing about what it means to be someone in recovery. What does it mean to um, to talk about that stuff? And I also get kind of pissed too, as someone 
who's like in a 12-step program and then I hear writers basically use like a lot of our stuff and people are like, oh, that's that's so new. And I'm like, that's not that's not new. <laughs> like, you know, I it, and it feels like a, I don't know if you're part of a sorority or a fraternity, but it's like a fraternity and someone's like sharing like your, your hazing process with everyone or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, you can't do that. That's a secret place, <laughs> you know? Too complex, much too complex. This week's episode is also brought to you by Quakerspeak. Quakerspeak is a weekly video series that features interviews with modern-day Quakers and seekers on a range of topics. They invite you to join them. They've created a playlist of videos they think progressive Christians like you and I just might like. Visit them at quakerspeak.com slash ourbibleapp. And don't forget the dashes. That's quakerspeak.com slash our-bible-app. One of the quotes that I really enjoyed, you said, I wanted to die, but early recovery is like I have been sentenced to thrive. That is, that is such a, a, a seesaw-like dichotomy. Sentenced means that doomed, but like thrive means that like you, you're not only going to, to live, but you are going to find ways to enjoy it, you know? Yeah, you're such a raw, ugly nerve, and I really hope that 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 someone who's in early recovery gets their hands on this devotional. Um, yeah, you're such a raw, ugly nerve early on in recovery, and you just want it. You know, um, you, you don't know how to live without a substance in your body, and you don't know how to live with a substance in your body. You're really in this place where this thing that you've been using for all this time stops working. And it feels like such a betrayal. You know what I mean? I don't mean you don't feel the effects of it, but what it did for you, particularly early on, but even towards the middle of wherever you're at in your stage of 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 of, of using a substance to get outside yourself, it stops working towards the end in the way it did. And it actually it feels like such a betrayal. It feels like the thing you love the most in the world has turned on you too. And by the time it's done with you, your family wants nothing to do with you or, you know, your career is shot or, or, or your kids or, you know, it's taken everything. Like you've given this thing everything and you've given it either willingly or unwillingly. And that's a whole other argument. Um, I believe that a lot of it's unwillingly um, and that most folks in recovery are really good people. And if they had a choice, they would make different choices. Um, but you've given it everything. You've sacrificed everything on this altar. And then at the end, it betrays you and you just want to die. And instead, you're sentenced to be this raw, ugly nerve in the midst of the middle of life, something you've never done. And it is, it is, it, it feels like you've been sentenced. You're like, man, what the f- but people invite you to do like, oh, we're having a dinner party. You're like, okay, I don't know how to do that, and and but I'll go do it. You know, I remember one of the first dinner parties I was invited to by like some young hipster kids. Like, and when I first got sober, you know, um, and I was still kind of a kid. I was like thirty, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. Like, you know, like everyone's like serving themselves and conversating and discussing and looking each other in the eye and like i only had like several instincts and that was uh i wanted money i wanted sex and i wanted control of my life and i wanted it now (laughs) and anything i didn't fall into those instincts i didn't know what to do with you know you just want to be my friend for the sake of being a friend you just invited me here because you knew I would get something from it, even though I didn't know I'd get something from it. Um, and I remember, like, for some reason, the asparagus. I hadn't had asparagus in so many years. And that I just remember staring at the asparagus, and I was like, what do you do with asparagus? Like, I know intellectually you're supposed to eat it. And I know, like, I could probably use a fork and a knife to cut it. But, like, do I pick it up with my hand? Like, what do I do with this asparagus? Like... <laughs> Like, and, and this is the stuff that's running through my head, you know, while everyone else is having a fucking delightful time. And um, 
So yeah, it's it feels like you've been sentenced to life against your will. And and I really believe that uh, if you're sober, it's by the grace of God, and that God kind of picks you up and plucks you and moves you to this new position in life. Sometimes very much against your will. I did not want to get sober. I did not want to stay sober. Just like um, I don't didn't want to be a pastor. I, I really, you know, um, I. I'm answering a call that feels more like I'm being drug kicking and screaming those days. Yeah. <laughs> Lenny, you're not the only one. That's how I feel about the situation that I've ended up in doing all of this faith work. I never, I ever, ever wanted to do it. I never wanted my name associated with it. It was just one of those things that um, I was compelled to put one foot in front of the other. And I was infuriated by the things that weren't getting done. And so it just happened. And then I submitted and here I am. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's, it's like, um, if I, if I can, if I can, if I can be honest with how much I hate it, um, it helps me do the work of, of trying to improve it. And that's the, that's the kind of backwards thinking that I think we both share <laughs> a little bit there. Yeah, no, um, and, 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 and the, the challenging thing with all of that is, uh, like, I, I, I tweeted something like a couple of weeks ago, um, and I think a lot of prophetic ministry starts with, uh, fuck it, I'll do it, right? And so there are these places um, in the church, when I talk about the church, I mean Big C, the spiritual group of saints that are all engaging with this divine entity that I like to call God. And I think, you know, became a human being. It was lynched and hung from a tree because he tried to love us by law enforcement named Jesus. And so having, I, 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 I think, well, one thing, I, I think a lot of prophetic ministries like that. It's just like, fuck it, I'll go do it. And the other thing is, is like the people, I don't trust anyone who's like, A, I don't trust anyone who calls me a prophet. I think they're trying to kill me. B, I don't trust any, right? Because like, you know, if you're a person of color or you're LGBTQIA or you're both or any of that stuff, everyone's like, oh, you're so prophetic. And it's like, so you want me to be stoned? I don't understand why this is not a compliment. That's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I think all prophetic ministry starts in that way. And the third thing is, is that I don't trust anyone who like happily goes about this shit. <laughs> anyone who's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just really excited to be a pastor or a faith leader or like I, I don't trust the compliant. I trust the defiant. And the reason I say that is because. And this is, you know, much bigger kind of theological framework. But what we're saying in Christ Christianity is a bad sell, and 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 what we're telling people is, I mean, really, at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, when we invite someone into discipleship, and 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 that invitation was already planted in their heart, and that's the only reason they're sitting in front of you anyway, and you say to them, "I want you to come to Calvary with me and suffer and die." For those you love that's a really shitty sell <laughs> that's not a good sell but like that's what we're doing we're inviting people into say yes there's resurrection yes there's new life yes there is a kingdom k-i-n-dash-d-o-m to come yes there's the banquet of god yes yes all that but we often, particularly in progressive Christian circles, skip over the fact that you will be lynched for your friends. You will suffer and be humiliated. You will be abandoned and you will be hung from a tree. That is, I mean, that's what we're inviting people into. There's all this other good stuff, but I, I, I think, I, I think um, capturing that and 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 living into that is something that I don't think anyone willingly does. I mean, uh, w willingly does. Uh, 
Jesus did. When Jesus was like, dude, you know, if you could take this from me, that'd be super sweet right yeah. now. Yeah. It, it is about to go down in a couple minutes, and yeah. I, I'm not ready for it. Yeah. So God's own self couldn't handle it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm just, I'm suspicious of people. Um, I'm, I'm suspicious of a lot of things, but I'm suspicious. <laughs> We're like, oh, I love doing racial justice work in the church. Or, I love. I was like, okay, cool, man, cool, man. It's, I really have hard. very few choices. Yeah, it's it's hard work. It's hard work, and it's demanding, and um, puts you in a place where, uh, and I guess. I guess the thing that really frustrates me about um, our church experiences is that at least when I was a kid, we were taught that you're supposed to look like you always have the answer. Um, And that is, that is, that is, that is impossible, you know, Um, and breeds like this fakeness and plasticity to this lived and uh, trial and error experience. Yeah. Um, Why? Why have you decided to, and I'm just going to use that as like a bridge because I'm, I, I, all of my thoughts are just kind of mixing together. That's fine. Why did you decide to call your book Dear Church? Like, have you, I mean, have you come to a place where you are just so annoyed with like this, this veneer of plasticity that you're like, that ain't real? Or is it something completely different? <laughs> but when I see this, anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, that's, that's so, so the, so the full title is Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S. It really sounds like you're about to read the church. Like you're just going to give them a yes. big old read. Yeah. So it, it is a love letter. Um, it's so funny. I was, I, I don't know why I'm going to tell this story. This will be the second time I told this story. Um, I was talking to a friend earlier today. When I was a kid... Um, I would stand over my mother. My father would beat her. I mean, from like five, six years old, you know, I would stand over her and try and protect her with my little body. And I would take these blows that I couldn't take. And I would, I would, I would stand there in defiance of this woman's love. Um, So I understand what it's like to love something and have a very complicated relationship with it. Uh, I have a very complicated relationship with my father, who's in the church triumphant, I believe. Um, I had a very complicated relationship with my mother, who would yell at me for, you know, getting him riled up after I had just gotten beaten for her. I have a very complicated relationship with the church of Jesus Christ. Um, and so the book in a lot of ways is really from that place of me standing over the body of so many of my siblings trying to take a few blows for them. Um, and I don't know where that instinct comes from in me. I'm just one of those people. Um, and I, and there's, and there's a lot in that illustration, right? Just to sit with that I don't have to like draw out or explain to anyone. They can take what they want from it. Like I, I've been trying to practice. I said what I said. And, and, um, and so the book comes from that. It is a love letter to the church, uh, particularly in the evangelical Lutheran church in America and mainline Christian. Christians in general, we are so obsessed with the narrative of church decline that we are missing opportunity, the opportunity of the 21st century. Um, and I believe that the church, I mean, you know, and maybe you'll get to this, but I have a whole thesis about that too, what the yes. church is be doing. I, I guess I love that description. And what I'm excited about this is that you are they're doing exactly what you say. And I've had a chance to just kind of like read a bit um, here and there in the book. And I love that you are talking about race. You're talking about gender, you're talking about sexuality. You're talking about all of these things that the church has completely 
like they just have a big old blind spot like they are just unable to see it um i love that image that you painted in my mind that's 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 incredible um i gotta say that when i saw online that you were saying the church is queer i was like who is this motherfucker like who who does he think that he is because i met you that one time and um definitely have a wife definitely just a large cisgender black man tattoos everywhere uh curses a lot i was just like i was like i i do not i do not see any queerness so what the fuck is he talking about um Yeah, no, I mean, like, it, and, and part of it's just being like a zennial and a child of the 90s. Like, you know, like, um, we didn't label who we fucked. Yeah. We didn't yeah. label who we loved, and we didn't label who we made love to. Um, but I'm queer, um, but I am in a heteronormative marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, what what does that mean, right? Um, and I really think we're in a time um, right now in the country of naming um, I think we're in a time. I mean, that's. I think that's going on all over the political spectrum, the social spectrum, the cultural spectrum of the United States. We're in a time of naming, um, um, and people are naming things. Uh, some of some of it's being falsely named, but it's being named. I think in the church, we're in a time of naming and confronting, um, which is what Jesus did, right? Jesus named would name, you know, part part of Jesus' identity was tied to this idea that he was an exorcist. So in Luke, you know, they're like, uh, you know, who do we tell? Who do we tell Herod and all them who you are, right? Jesus is like, you go and tell that fox, right, what you see here, right? And one of the things he's, you know, one of the things he names is, is that demons are being cast out. So part of Jesus' messianic identity is tied to this exorcist. Um, and I think it's a time for us to name and confront radical evil. Part of that is like living into my full self. And it was actually my sponsor in my 12 step program. You know, we had done many inventories, which is like the fifth step. And I, you know, part of that is your sex conduct. And he, you know, and, and for three years he was just like, dude, you know, you're queer, right? You know, you're bi, right? I was like, what? He was like, it's he's like, it's all over your your history. Like, why won't you name that? I was like, well, it's a thing I did, and they're people I loved, but like he's like, dude, you know your body. I mean, every year he would say this to me. This is a 76-year-old cis white dude. Right? He's too straight as an arrow. You know, he'd be like, but dude, you you know you're like either bi or pan. Like he started learning new terms to talk to me about this. He was like, you know, uh, he's like, he's like, you're one of these things. You're not straight. He's like, why won't you live into that? He's like, and, and, and then like by the third year he talked about it, he said, you know, my fear is if you deny whole parts of yourself, you're going to act out on it in ways that aren't life-giving. Oh. He's like, and as someone who has made a commitment to another person, What's that mean that you're not being your full self to them? And so, like, you know, I had I had some really uh, 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 early conversations coming out to to my partner who had known me since I was 19. So she was like, yeah. She was like, used to make out with guys at parties we went to. But okay. This shocker, right? But, but, but we had named it. Yeah. We had named it as a couple. We had named it. And so... Um, there is a chapter where I come out, it's called The Church is Queer, mm. um, and it's still being fine-tuned, right, um, because, you know, there, you know, there are points where, you know, I crushed on and or sort of dated a few trans women, but that's not what makes me queer, right? That, that makes me straight. <laughs> and, so, and, 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 and so there's some fine-tuning where, like, I, I'm trying to differentiate what that means, right, and, and what that would have meant 15, 20 years ago. 15 years ago would have meant something very different now. Now we know that that is a natural urge of a straight man to like women, right? Yeah. How the femme and the sacred feminine shows up in their lives. So you know, that, that, that's, that's a very orthodox kind of thing that's happening between them. It's, it's, it's not queer, but 15, 20 years ago, that would have been queer, right? And so, or at least society would have looked at me that way. No matter, do you know what I mean? Uh, 
And so, and, and so I'm trying to like fine tune some of the language before it goes to the printer. But, but yeah, I'm queer. I'm because I make dudes like a lot. <laughs> like because I, you know, I made love to men and like naming that right, which yeah. is still hard to say. I, I think it's really incredible that you have uh, this this platform and this space to say these things because you do come off so straight. And uh, I don't think that your experience is different from very many straight ministers, even in the church. You know, it's being able to address it and see it and let the sunlight in, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah. Air that and, shit out. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and also, like, and, and I know, like, it got cliche for a while, but I don't think anyone's really straight, you know? And my partner, that was the first thing she said, you know? She's like, no one's really straight. She's like, that, that's a lie. That's a thing we made up. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and she's been super supportive through it, you know? And then, I, you know, I talked to my daughter, who's, like, a Gen Z. She's 20, and she was just, like, N. <laughs> you know, like for her, she was like, "I love you. I'm here to support you," but like, end, uh, right? It's, that's so it's 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 really interesting, like the 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 way we generationally talk about it too. But it's an important time for me to name that. It's an important time for me as a black man in the church yeah. to name that. Um, um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that toxic masculinity is killing us. Um. And like, what does it mean to have authentic manhood? And whenever we've heard that in church settings, authentic manhood has meant, you know, authentically the leader, you know, I'm a badass. And so, yeah, um, my friend Kelsey Brown calls me a, uh, and she, what does she call She calls me, I'm a, I'm aggressively male, right? <laughs> and, um, and and she's so so for her it was the same experience that that she was she thought was really tender that like you know that she was one of the first people I came out to, oh. you know, and she's it was really tender for her she was like wow so like you, and so we have lots of discussions around that and what does that mean I I think manhood, I, you know the premise of the book is is that white supremacy is the grandfather demon and all the rest of them fall under it right oh. so patriarchy transphobia homophobia. Um, all that stuff is wrapped up in white supremacy mm -hmm. um, and specifically cis heterosexual male white supremacy and I can't address white supremacy if I don't address that particularly as a black man I never had any examples of what an authentic man looked like mm -hmm. not personally in my life I had books <laughs> books right I had I had, you know, TV like, dads. I had TV dads, right? One of them turned out to be a rapist. Ugh, right. Um, I, I mean, like, I mean, like, think about, like, and, and I talk about that in the book, like, culturally, as a man, when I survey the landscape in America, it is a wasteland. There is, there's nothing that I can turn to. It's like, that's authentic manhood. There's very little examples of that. And it, it is dire. This is a dire situation. I, I, you know, and if men don't start having these conversations with each other, you know, it's we're we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Today's episode is also brought to you by Mission Year. As an organization, they root themselves in the neighborhood. You can become part of the local community, worship and serve alongside neighbors, and live into being advocates for solidarity and justice. With Mission Year, your work will be to fall in love with Jesus and the city, to live and grow into your gifts and purpose, to build beloved community across all dividing lines, and to advocate for justice in your neighborhood and world. Find out more and sign up online at missionyear.org slash program. Once again, don't forget the dashes. That's missionyear.org slash mission dash year dash program. Sex and sexuality seems like such a large part of your story. And I know what it's like when you finally get to tell a piece about yourself. When you're saying, you know, this, um, the framework of, the, of a person that you guys have been seeing isn't real, you know? Yeah. 
and I'm going to let you see who I really am. Like, I know what that's like and it's terrifying and you lose community and, you know, you're, you feel like your ass is hanging out in the wind and you have nothing to, to cover it with. Like, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, yeah. but that can happen to us at any time from any perspective. Um, how much harder to do it with sex and sexuality, something that the church, we just don't want to talk about it. It's just like this, this thing that you hide underneath your bed until you get married, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, you have such a complicated history with sex and sexuality. How, how does sex inform your spirituality? Do you see, still see sex as some kind of sacred or some kind of holy? I, I do. I, I think that um, in an ethical paradigm that people get to decide on their own in light of their own understanding of scripture and God, um, they get to fuck and it's pretty great, right? Or they get to make tender love, or they get to just lay next to their partner and have no sexual feelings towards them whatsoever, but just enjoy their presence. Um, you know, shout out to my ace folks who always feel a race, you know? And um, I think that uh, you get to do all that, and I think God smiles while you do it. Um, but I'm still developing what that means for me. Um, I do believe that the church, I, I do believe that one of the, you know, um, and I think uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber, really, the Reverend Bowles-Weber, sorry, I always do that. Why do I do that with some people? The Reverend Bowles-Weber, um, she, uh, she's, she's definitely hitting on something in her new book, Shameless. Yeah. But I think she's really struck on um, a chord that there really is a need for a sexual ethic or theology that needs to be developed by the church. And I think it's going to be one of the, um, one of the, one of the, the, the great projects of the 21st century. I think dismantling white supremacy is, is, is the first great project. And I think part and parcel of that is, is human sexuality. Um, for the church. I think that's what it means to carry our cross today. And it's going to mean something different a hundred years from now, but that's what it means today. And, um, <clears throat> but part of that conversation is, um, is, 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 is that queer folks are exhausted by it. They feel like they've been having it for decades now. Um, if not 2000 yeah. years, you know what I mean? Depending on your understanding right of, of, of sexuality um, I mean of the church and sexuality depending on your understanding either the either queer folks have been having this conversation for 2,000 years or for like the last 30 or 40 you know yeah. whatever um, but queer folks are exhausted by it straight folks are ashamed of it and church leaders are scared of it and so that doesn't make for healthy dialogue <laughs> to start right no <laughs> right, and, and folks are traumatized too. You, you add in the trauma, you add in all that stuff. But I think it's one of the great projects um, of, of of our time, and I think it's what our generation, for some reason, this conversation is happening in every major denomination, every progressive church space I know, every conservative church space I know. This conversation of what does it mean to be an embodied, enfleshed human being? Yeah. You know, like Jesus was in flesh, right? Yeah. He was in flesh, and so like my flesh is holy, my 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 body is holy. What I choose to do with it is a sacred thing, um, and who I choose to do it with is sacred. Um, and I try and live into that the best I can. Hmm. How how does this is? Um, I think these this question is kind of tied into what you're saying, but. How does the Bible apply to uh, your your private and personal interpretation um, yeah. of sex? Yeah. So, so, so scripturally, like, I don't know if we should look to scripture. <laughs> I mean, I I believe that the answers lie in scripture, but I don't think we need to. Let's put it this way: there aren't great examples in scripture. All right. Yes. 
you are not going to find a heteronormative marriage in scripture. Hmm. Now you can say, you can say, well, what about Jesus and Mary? And I could say, well, Jesus had either had two moms or two dads. You figure it out. (laughs) Right. You're not right. Either the spirit is the one or the father is the one. (laughs) What do you mean heteronormative though? Like there's no, there's no one dude, one one woman marriage in scripture. I, I dare someone to find examples of it. They don't exist. Uh, what about... Um... They didn't record it. They didn't think it was important the way we do. Okay. So what about uh, Sarah and Abraham? Yeah. What about Hagar, as sex slave? What about Moses? And who did Moses marry? Um, Moses married Miriam, but... It, what, what, but I mean, not Miriam. Um, oh, wait, yeah. But 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 what, how is that relationship uh, sussed out in Scripture? It isn't. We hear about Moses' leadership, not what his sex life was about. Okay. We know he had a wife. That's it, right? We know he had a wife. Yeah. And also, Moses had a pretty intense relationship with God. Yeah. That was kind of all-encompassing. I mean, I'm just saying it's hard to suss them out. David, my gosh, don't use that as an example. Yeah, there's no like one story that lays out how a married couple is supposed to be. You know, that's like, (laughs) he did this, she did this, they were together, they had this many children, this is how they treated each other, their roles, all of it. Like, yeah, there's, the scripture never focuses on that. And I and I think that's important, right? And some people say, well, that's the exception, and culturally this was accepted, and da 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 But they're all full of shit. Yeah. Because you can't say, well, script, you, you can't bifurcate scripture in that way. Either it's God-grieved, and look, I understand that scripture is, should probably, you know, the Bible should be called the library, and it's thousands of different voices that don't agree with each other, hard. But I still believe it's God-grieved. I still believe there is a narrative arc that aims towards grace and liberation throughout the entire thing. I think all scripture is a story of a loving God liberating oppressed people throughout all human history. And sometimes that God intervenes in human history. Yeah. I believe that. But the, the reason there's not an example is because it wasn't important. We are the ones who are placing importance and searching for a paradigm that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Now, if we want to, you know, if you want to talk about the overall messages of Scripture, right? Um, and, and, you know, the overall messages of Scripture is basically don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> love, like, love God. Love the people about you. If you happen to be in a relationship with that person, those same rules apply. They're not null and void because suddenly you're married and I'm the head of the household and you need to, you know, like, no, no like the overall narrative arc of the gospel and scripture in general, including the Hebrew Bible is liberation for people. So, I mean, a scriptural way of looking at it is like, how am I liberating my partner? What am I doing? That's that, 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 that's, that's, that, that's working with my partner's personal, social, racial, and radical liberation in, in their relationship with God. Easier said than done. I, yeah, you're right. That's that's the hard part. That's the hard part. Not who we're fucking, but yeah, yeah, yeah. how and we're so, taking care of each other. Yeah, and 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 so what I always tell couples when I preside at a uh, at, at a wedding, um, I always say, I mean, it's the same sermon. It's the same three minute sermon, and and basically it is, you have chosen this person to say. I am going to point them towards God for the rest of my life. And when I get off track, they agree to point me towards God. And all this community of people and friends and family gathered when we're both off track will point us back towards the divine and the creator. That's beautiful. Yeah. And we're just going to walk together. That's it. That's all we're going to do is I'm going to take that journey with you. You know, for as long as I can. Yeah. Lenny, I really hope um, that 
many, very many people get to read your book. I am really excited about it being birthed into this world. Um, do you, what's the launch date? Is it launch June? date is July. July. I know. <laughs> July 2nd. And it's so weird because it did make buzz, right? Like for like three weeks there, it was in the top 100 for Christian social issues on yes. Amazon. Yeah, now it's dropped, but like that's because like I'm not posting or I don't want people to get exhausted about yeah. it. Um, but July second, I'm having a launch party at St. Lydia's. Um, oh, July cool! 2nd, yeah, um, at seven p.m. Um, you can check it out on LennyDuncan.com, and there's a whole book tour. Um, and then next month, I'll start looking for about. 45 people who will get like advanced copies of the book who want to be part of my launch team. Mm. If you're part of the launch team. Uh, go to LennyDuncan.com, send me a message. Um, I want to be part of the launch team. Sounds yeah, like it. Yeah, and we just need people who are going to be aggressive on social media. <laughs> Please help, yeah. Yeah, we need people who are, who are going to be aggressively uh, talking about issues of, of, of liberation, aggressively queer and aggressively black online with this book. Yeah. Or, or aggressively accomplices, right? Because, like, we... One of the premises of the book is that, like, you know, if I'm in the whitest denomination in America, then, like, that means that I have 3.8 million people who have power and privilege who can be potential accomplices in a battle for liberation in this country. And we need to take – we need to assess what we really have, not scream for diversity, and yeah. start getting those folks to do the work. Right? Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, so where else can people find you? They can find you on LennyDuncan.com, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, I'm on all the things. So uh, I'm at Lenny A. Duncan on Twitter. I love a Twitter follow. My, it's it's weird. My Twitter's finally like starting to build up. My Facebook, which is an open Facebook, totally public. You can I'll add anyone till I'm almost. <laughs> I'm almost at the limit, so I just don't come. add anyone. You're gonna get hacked. Don't do it. No, come on, come on, everyone, bring it on. And you can all add me on Facebook at Lenny Duncan, um, and on uh, the gram is like my private space. That's the only space where it's just I cultivate for friends. Um, but but yeah, add me on all the things, um, and also jhustable.org. I am the pastor of Jehu's Table in Brooklyn, New York. Our church plant of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, and we are a queer affirming black space in Brooklyn. And so awesome. please come and check us out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lenny. Thank you. This was, this was fun. And that's our show. Check out Lenny's devotional in our Bible app where you'll be able to find a lot more coming from him as he's our first resident writer ever. Stay tuned. You can find me everywhere as Crystal Cheatham or as The Cheat on Instagram. Okay, bye.